0: have your Bible, we are in the last book of the New Testament, in a book called Revelation. And we've taken almost, I, I counted it up, it's been about eight weeks, about seven or eight weeks since we were last in Revelation. You have slept since then, I've slept since then, we will review it in just a moment. But as you're turning there, I do just want to remind you of a couple things, members, as we do, we do have reading programs out, we have chances to serve out there, some paperwork to pick up, we'd love for you to do that. And before we read our passage today, I want you to know I have tried all week to formulate an outline for this passage. It did not happen. So as Andy's going to put up things through the screen on the, on, on this time, you're going to be writing furiously. There's no notes in the back to fill in blanks. There are a limited number because our printer is broken. Literally, it finally kicked the bucket. Uh, it's done. We have about 20 extra copies of the PowerPoint that have all the slides, and we'll send those out over email and post them online. All the good stuff. But just so you know, this chapter is heavy, and we are not going to probably get through all of it. So, if you're able to stand this morning, let's read what I hope, by God's grace and His Spirit, to get through today. We'll go down to verse 13, maybe a little into 14. But I want you to know, I have read. I read a guy's dissertation this week. Oh. 550 pages about Revelation chapter 11, and I still came confused back to the pulpit. We'll see how clear it is today. May God give us grace and wisdom. And here's God's word this morning. And this is again after, and I'll give more back history. This is again, we're in an interlude, a timeout, a of parentheses between judgments that are going on. And we've already had one of those happen. We're in a second cycle of it happening, and this is where it picks up. And this chapter, I will say one more editorial note here before we read. This chapter is probably the hardest chapter I've ever preached in the whole of my preaching, Young Ministry. But what a blessing it has been, and I pray we receive that today. Here it is. Then I was given a measuring rod, John says, like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure, verse 2, the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. If you're doing the math, it's three and a half years. Authority to say to the witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are, verse 4, the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord and of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone harmed them, it, this is shows how it will be doomed to them, and they will be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as is often as they desire. Verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great day, great city that symbolizes, symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt or Sodom and Gomorrah, where their Lord was crucified. Four, verse nine, three and a half days, some of from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those, verse 10, who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the true prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell upon all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And verse 13. And at the hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and they gave glory to the God God of heaven. I'm going to go home now and you're going to figure this out, all right, as all this comes. Just kidding. This is a mouthful to read. It is really hard to understand. I pray that we're clear today. I've tried to write myself clear. We usually have a study guide out before. We're going to wait a week on that. Nelson's given feedback to it. But I want to say our theme has always been this, God wins. I'm going to present to you a different interpretation than even myself grew up coming to But I want you to know, as you have deer in headlight looks as we go through this, that we still love each other, don't we? And we believe that God wins. That's what matters most. So I want you to know that. But as we come to this, there's a lot of details. If you can't keep up with the notes, just listen. You can keep those later. I'd rather you engage in God's word than try and get every word that I say down. Does that make sense? May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go before him as we pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for your word. Even hard passages like this that are so key to our faith, and even the book of Revelation. But are necessary for us to go through. Thank you, Lord. We appreciate your word. We love your word, but more so, we love you, the God of the word. But Father, you're the authority over us. May we honor you with what we learn today. For those without Christ, may they know Christ personally. For those with Christ, may they be encouraged in that same Savior of ours. We pray in His name, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, as we come to this, I'm just going to tell you this. We're going to jump right into the big idea. No fancy illustrations to start off. The big idea is simply this, and Andy will have it up on the screen. Because really what this whole section boils down to is, is God will build his church through his word and through his messengers, even through a persecuted church. And I want to remind you, we started the study back on Mother's Day of 2023, about a year ago. We hope to end it about the same time this coming year. But revelation is not a picture, or, or not a detailed list of every jot and tittle that's going to happen in a way that a book outside the Bible may tell you it, it's going to happen. is a picture book. It's apocalyptic language. It's a language that is written in such a way as to teach us through imagery and symbolism and figurative metaphors about what's really going to happen. Is it symbolic? Is it literal? And everybody said, yes, it's both. And we need to keep that balance in perspective. But at the same time, we also could spend weeks here. We literally could spend weeks here. But we're going to try and do the biggest thing in one chapter and in one sermon. The other thing I want to mention to you as we go on is that this book, this chapter of this book, is often the turning point for most people. Most people have already jumped off the ship of Revelation way back in chapter 10. It's going to be hard from now until the end of May. But by God's grace, we shall get through it. Amen? And we will do our best. So where have we been? And Andy's going to put this up here. Where have we been? And this is just a little bit of a review. And if you just want to put the whole slide up, that'd be great. The review basically is going to come down to this. There are three cycles of seven judgments. We looked at the first of those leading up to chapter 8. There were the seals. Then there are seven judgments. The trumpets, which we're in now, and the bowls. And each cycle, there's six judgments. And then there's a little parenthesis, a little break. And in that break, there's a picture of what is usually happening at the very end of the world, at the very end. We saw that happen in Revelation chapter 7. We're seeing that happen now. And what you need to know is that just because things look like they're in a chronological order, just like our lives are sometimes in a chronological order, does not mean that's necessarily how it is. And when I say the word symbolic or metaphorical or figurative, I am not saying to you it is not true. There was a time in our churches where someone would get up and say, this passage is symbolic, and they meant that the Bible was not true. I can tell you something that's a symbol. Do you see that over there? That's a cross. That symbolically represents everything that we believe about what Jesus did on that cross. But we don't think that's any less true, do we? And so today, I'm going to present to you a symbolic interpretation of Revelation chapter 11. For many of you, this is going to really be a deer in the headlights. It is not less true. It's a different take. And I'll be, I'll be honest, I, this is not how I grew up, but it's something that I want you to know. And so, Andy, if you want to go to the next one, that would be great. Where do we go with this? Well, that review is where we are. And we're going to start here with the temple in verses 1 and 2, the temple. And so most of you, myself included, grew up believing that this temple is a literal temple that's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem someday. That the moment that the Antichrist comes and 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 all these people come together, the Jews are going to build this temple and they're going to restart the literal worship and the literal sacrificing of animals in the book of or in Jerusalem itself. Well, there's a problem with that? Because right now there's a mosque and other buildings upon the Mount where that is happening. And every time something happens over there, all the pro- prophecy pundits come out and say this has to be this has to be the temple. Well, friends, what if that weren't the case? Because there's going to be a lot of things going on here. There's going to be witnesses. There's going to be fire coming out of their mouths. And, and, and if this is a literal interpretation of this, then everything that we've talked about has to be taken into perspective as well. So if this is not literal, and I'm going to take time to detail all that. We'll put out the study guide next week. But if this is not literal, then what is this? Friends, I think this is a picture, as has been often the case here, that the church's journey throughout history, this is the final phase of the conflict with the beast. This is not literally talking about a three and a half year journey into the book of Revelation. This is a picture of all Christians, all time, everywhere, leading throughout history. So Darren, how would you come to that interpretation? Well, we read some of it just a minute ago. You see, it comes down in verses one and two to that, 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 that the, the phrase, temple of God. Throughout the New Testament, there are two uses of the temple of God. One is referring to Jesus himself, the, the, the temple of the person of Jesus Christ who dwelt and died for us. But the most texts indicate that the temple refers to the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, 2 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 3, etc., etc., etc. And so what I believe that this is showing is that this temple that it's speaking of is a symbolic representation of the church itself. Because every other use of the word in the Bible refers to that very thing, even within the book of Revelation. If you were to go back to Revelation chapter 3, verse, uh, chapter 3 verse 12, one of the churches there is called a pillar in the temple of God. The same use of temple in chapter 3 is the same use of temple in chapter 11, and it doesn't seem to be indicating a physical temple rebuilt by some Jews over there. It seems to be representing all God's people everywhere all time. Because I want to bring that up to your mind again. If John is writing to a group of Christians being persecuted, and he was, why would he give them a vision of something so long far out that would give them no hope for the very part they're in? But if this is symbolically representing all things then perhaps that is the case. Now, I know that's not normal, because if you read the Left Behind series books, the two witnesses come out, and they start breathing fire out, and they start trying to shoot them down, and it's just a whole mass chaos. We'll get there. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. I have great respect across the board, and I see why some pastors don't preach this, because it can split a church. But we are not split because we have different views on Revelation. We split because bad doctrine is taught. But we uphold the same doctrine that he is Lord and he is Lord indeed. So as you look at verse 11, I'm going to say that temple refers to the people of God across all of earth. You next go to the measuring, to the measuring. And this measuring here, you will see in verse 1, he says, And measure the temple of God. The measuring of the temple seems to have nothing to do with trying to find out how big it was, how tall depth and all that this measuring is equivalent in the same wording to what chapter 7 says is the sealing of those in the church of God. Do you remember that? There were 144,000, and traditionally it's interpreted that 144,000 Jews are going to be saved. I made the argument that that represents all believers of all time. All those who are truly saved in Christ are represented there in chapter 7. The idea is, is that to be measured, means that you are known, you are loved, and you are brought forth by God himself. In fact, it signifies protection from divine wrath. It signifies protection from divine wrath. And it doesn't guarantee you any immunity. It doesn't guarantee you any immunity from physical persecution or dying as a martyr. To be measured is God saying to you, I have solved your sin problem in Christ But you are safe in my arms, though the world will try to do everything to take you away from me. And guys, we know that. There's not height nor death or anything else in all creation that could ever separate us from who? The love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't think he's talking about a literal temple here. I think he's talking about a picture of what God has done for us in Christ, And I'm going to move quickly, so if you're taking notes, again, just know we'll have that out afterwards. So he has, notice there in verse 1, he mentions an inner and outer court, an inner and outer court. Some suggest these are literally, as, as the physical temple was, there was an inner court for the Jews and an outer court for the Gentiles. Some have suggested that if there's a literal new temple built, that that's how they'll do it again. I don't think that's what's in play here. What I believe is, is that the church is in the intercourt, court so to speak, in verse 1. This church is spiritually shielded from God's wrath. The church is spiritually shielded from God's wrath, but physically oppressed by those who are on the outside. Did you know that God's number one plan has always been to bring a people after his own name to save them for his own glory? That's what the book of Genesis is all about. If you're in Genesis 6 and 7 today, the ark and all that, the ark of salvation in Christ. But you notice there in verse 1 that he says that there is a... Uh, he'll measure the temple and the altar, and, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city. That word holy city there in verse 2 refers uh, four times with the book of Hebrews to believers, not to a physical city. Every time the word city, polos, is used in, in in Greek, in both Hebrews and in Revelation, it refers to a group of people, a saved group of people, not a literal physical place like Jerusalem. You say, Darren, if that's the case, how have so many missed it? Can I remind you that what I'm preaching right now was taught for almost 1,800 years until we got prosperous in this nation? It wasn't until we started... Uh, Basically being a prosperous nation, that a lot of the views that we've held for years and years as evangelicals about this book started to change. Because we didn't see it just as us as a special people. We saw it as us for all time being the special people that God brought into his own fold. So earthly believers are seen as members of this heavenly Jerusalem. But then we go on, this inner and outer court, that, that seems to be something. But what about these dates? Did you catch all those these dates. And and Andy, if you'll put up that next slide there. Forty-two the time references here. There's 42 months, there's 1260 days, there's three and a half years. What is the meaning of all this? Again, it's a debate. Is is it literal three and a half years, 1260 days, or is it a symbolic number pointing to something else? And the answer is it could probably be both, but I'm gonna make the argument that it is gonna be there and, and and symbolic. What does this mean? It means that the whole present church era it means it's not an exact reference to a calendar or a time but it is as always a challenge for all believers of all time friends that's why i love church history if you're if you're looking for something to study this year besides the bible get into church history cuz god has been working in people's lives outside of ours and it's cool to see how that is biographies autobiographies the same god that's been working has been working through all this time and this doesn't mean that Forty-two months, or twelve hundred and sixty days, or three and a half years, isn't literal, but it doesn't seem to be what John has been writing about. He's been using symbolic language since day one, and what he's saying here is exactly what Daniel seven twenty five is. Daniel seven twenty five says, and I'll give this for your reference. I'll read it for you, but it says, "Time that that when that time comes, the end of time comes. There will be a time, times, and half a time." In Revelation, there are many times that that same uh, reference is mentioned. Revelation. Chapter 11, Revelation chapter 12, Revelation 12, again in Revelation 13. And in all of those times, that same reference, 12, 60 days, three and a half years, all point not to a chronological side, but it's pointing back to an era between Christ's comings. You say, Darren, what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what we need it to mean. That is that he's not trying to tell them, start the clock right now. He's telling every Christian that God has kept you in every generation and he will keep you, especially when this time comes. Friends, you see how easily we can get misconstrued. I've read every Left Behind series book and I love it. And we can get so wrapped up in those details that we love the story more than we see the big picture. Don't think that God is not working. God is working in Africa, he's working in Asia, he's working in Alabama, he's working in Minnesota. And God bless him, and we know this recently. He's working in cities like Ketchikan, Alaska, where we've got some bylaws help recently. God is working everywhere. It's not just a localized group of people. And that's what this encourages us to do. So when you see these references in verse 2 to 42 months and all those things, I want you to know these are symbolic numbers, most likely. These are not literally to be followed. So where does that leave us? Well, let's talk about these time frames. The three and a half years... We know sometimes that uh, in biblical references, there's three and a half years when Elijah's ministry stopped up the sky. You remember that? These instances where in Luke 4 and James 5 that we're told that he prayed and it stopped right there. Those were literal times. We also know that there's times where God uses three and a half years in Scripture and other places where he does not give any sort of chronological time connected to that. So you need to know that numbers in Revelation aren't always exactly what they say. If I ask you what age you are, you're going to tell me what age you are, and we know that's what age you are. But sometimes when you hit a certain age, we like to flip numbers, don't we? And you're, you're, you're 80 one day, but you're 8 the next. And we know symbolically that you're, you're 8, but really you're 80. And so sometimes we do that as well. And these instances suggest a symbolic use of all these things. Andy, if you'll go to the next one, please. We want to talk to you about the two witnesses. These two witnesses, who are they? Because this is a big line of debate. Who are these two witnesses? Well, once again, I've been taught, as many of you have, that there are going to be two literal representatives, two physical people guarding this new literal temple in Jerusalem. Well, I believe they represent more than that. In fact, they represent the church of Jesus Christ and its mission and its prophecy both now and until the end of time. So many of us have seen, well, who are these two witnesses? We'll get there in a minute, but I want you to know that there are several possibilities. In fact, I found up to 15 different possibilities about who these representatives could be. 15 different people. Could you ever believe that Christians would disagree on anything? <laughs> 15 different people. And I take this one as the main culprit. I don't believe these are two literal people that are going to show up and breathe fire out of their mouths. Although that could happen. In fact, isn't that what James and John and his cohort asked Jesus? Jesus, if you want me to like call down fire on these people over here, just give me the word and it'll happen. That's not what's happening here. It happened in Elijah's day. But who are these witnesses? Who do they represent? I think they represent the church for all time. But, but specifically, I think there's a more biblical reference to them. Some suggest they could be Enoch or Elijah. You remember what happened to those guys, don't you? We talked about this in Sunday school today. They both just, they were just taken up. They were translated away in Genesis chapter 5 and in 1 Kings. Another view is that these two witnesses in verses 3 and 4 are Joshua and Zerubbabel, two names we don't use often, in Zechariah chapter 4, where they are mentioned in this similar way. But I think likely, and we can agree on this, that these two represent along with the church, Moses and Elijah. And what do we mean by that is Elijah called down fire from heaven, and you see that here in verse 5, if anyone would harm these witnesses, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And in Revelation 11, though, the fire proceeds from the mouth of these witnesses. And Elijah also prevented rain for three and a half years. Moses was also responsible for turning water into what? Into blood. And you see that reference down as we go through verse 6 and 7. And so in all these things, Moses and Elijah were also on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that, don't you? Jesus goes up on the mountain, and he transfigures himself, and however Peter recognized it, two guys walked out. And he says, hey, Jesus, can we put up a Motel 6 for for Moses and Elijah over here and get their rewards points going? And, And he says, no, that's not necessary, and that's what it was. So how do we know these might possibly be these two figures? Well, I want you to know the powers of each of these two Old Testament figures are attributed to uh, both of these witnesses, and they're not divided. Did you notice that in verses 5 and 6? It says, if they look at verse 5, look at verse 6. Notice the plural language here. They, them, they, them. These aren't individuals here. It's references of identical prophetic twins. They're law and prophet twins. What's more important, though, is verse 4. Look how they're described. These two are olive trees? I mean, are these just two olive trees that shoot up? Clearly, this is symbolic language here. Jesus said, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. I don't know about you. I mean, I think Jesus was a real person. He wasn't like some plant man that went around with vines shooting all over him. We take that as symbolic language. And what is suggested here is that these two olive trees point to the fact that these witnesses have the power of the Holy Spirit upon them, Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4. And then that word lampstand is used also in Revelation 2 and 3 for a couple of the churches to refer to them symbolically as being a true church in the, uh, the providence of God. And Jesus said in Revelation 119, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. But why two and not seven? All these different things. What is this trying to say? It's trying to say that it's not two specific individuals. It's referencing at different points from lampstands to fire to power to all these different things, referring not to two physical people, but to two gospel witnesses that are to come. And if you'll put that up on the next slide. Who are these people? These are not Moses and Elijah reincarnated. It seems these are witnesses that represent all of us for all time. Did you notice that in verses 9 to 13, the entire world of unbelievers will see the defeat and resurrection of the witnesses? This means that the witnesses are visible throughout the earth. This wasn't just some way that it happened in some localized area. Uh, Some would argue, well, that's what TV's for. Everybody sees them on a TV. Well, What about those people in the middle of the Amazon jungle? What about people who've never seen a TV or a radio or a smartphone? How are they going to see all this? That's why I believe this is not literally Moses and Elijah, it represents their spirit, but it comes to us to be a witness for all people. And they're represented by these folks. But what about the ministry of these two witnesses? What did they do? What did they come to do? Well, you're going to notice several words here as they come to be, the ministry. You notice in verse 5, these witnesses, which I'm saying is all of us, came to bring harm. What does it sound? Darren, how can we be bringing harm? The harm mentioned in verse 5, for which they are protected from, look at verse 5, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from heaven. Christian, have you ever wondered how you're harmed as a Christian? Some people give their life. Just a couple weeks ago in Africa, 125 Christians were killed on Christmas Day just for having a celebration about Christ's birth. That's one story of many. Some are persecuted economically. They're not allowed to have jobs that others have, or some are done politically, some are done spiritually. But the harm that is done is that they can kill the body, but they cannot destroy the soul. Aren't you grateful for that? Jesus says, you can kill me, but you can't kill the mission that's coming behind me. Paul was like Jello on a tree. If I, if, for me to die is Christ, but to live is gain. So you take my life or you don't take my life, guess who I get? Jesus Christ. And these witnesses here seem to have that same thing. And notice, though, there's that fire. What does that seem to be? There's a fire that comes out of their mouths. And if anyone would harm them, verse 5, fire pours from their mouths and consumes them. I don't think that this is referring, again, to a literal fire. In Revelation 1, verses 16 and 19, in Revelation, uh, excuse me, Revelation 1, 16, and Revelation 19, 15, and 21, Jesus is portrayed as one with a sword coming out of his mouth. Could Jesus literally have a sword coming out of his mouth? Sure, he could. But I don't think that's the point. The point here is what Jeremiah 5.14 says. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you've spoken this word, behold, I'm making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and fire shall consume them. Do you know what the power of our witness is? It's this right here. The word of God. Do you know how fire pours forth, so to speak, from your witness? It's when you share the word of God. Do you know how people come to know Jesus? It's because you share the word of God. And that's why I believe that this is a reference to the spoken word that's coming. The spoken word of these witnesses is a fire, the fire that we have. But what about these other references? And Andy, you can go ahead and put up the next slide for those taking notes. He says here that they shut up the heavens. Again, referring probably in verse 6. To Elijah's time. What is the shutting up of the heavens? Well, the shutting up of the heavens seems to be an answer to the the prayers of God's people in chapter 7. Do you remember that? Willie preached on this not too long ago back in October or September, whenever it was. And we read that they were crying out, God, when are you going to come and vindicate your name? God, when are you going to come back? Do you remember that prayer? How is it being answered? It's being answered right here. God shuts up the heavens. He answers their prayer. But then what about that blood? What about the blood that's mentioned towards the end of our reading here? It says, And they will prophesy, and they will turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as their desire. That blood seems to be a reference to our ability as a church to liberate from sin. I want to be clear there. The church has no saving power. Who saves us? only church? It's who? It's Christ. But who has the message of Jesus Christ? It is the church. It's not the world, and we are there to turn that 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 blood or that water into blood, and the blood into water, so to speak. But everything about us is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's why I believe this is not some re, redoing of Exodus and the and the and the plagues that were there. It seems to be symbolizing here the necessary power to liberate people from bondage. The church can change things through the power of God using the gospel say, Darren, I've never heard anything about this in my life. You probably haven't. But what I want to get us away from is getting so caught up in every jot and tittle of revelation that you have to know literally what it means to get us thinking more broadly to the mission that we have. And what is the mission that we have, church? It's to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's to baptize people of all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, making disciples of them. So often we get so literal that we miss what God has done in the span of time and space. So what happens then to these witnesses? Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, And when they had finished their testimony, When they had finished their testimony, Andy, you can move to the next one. When they had finished their testimony, what did they do to them? Did they clap for them? Hey, can we hear more of that, please? No. They finished their testimony... Who rose out from the bottomless pit? The beast. In verse 7, this probably describes events at the very end. Again, we're seeing a picture in the midst of the judgments. The earlier mention of measuring in verse 1 has successfully preserved the church until the prophetic fulfillment in the end. The beast introduced here is for the first time coming to bear. It's not a new emergence. It's not some, this is not anyone that we haven't seen before. Who's the beast? It's Satan himself. It's all the powers of Satan. Satan. Every Christian everywhere has been tempted. Every Christian everywhere has fought through what Satan brings to the table. But Satan rises up, and what does he do? What do the powers of Satan do across all time? It says he will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Friends, I can't think of any time outside of any span of church history where the church has not dealt with severe persecution bringing Christians to death. We are so blessed in this land, and I would not change anything about what we have in this land. I'm, we're so grateful. We have freedoms to do things in this, this land, despite what our nation has turned into and is turning into. We have freedom in this country to worship God as we see fit. May we never forget that. But there was a time, even before, why did this country start? Well, people came over from England because they didn't have a choice except to worship The Archbishop of Canterbury or the Pope himself, depending on which time frame. So the Puritans came, the Pilgrims came, all the people came across. Why? Because there was persecution coming. Satan's goal is always to take down the church. And can I ask our church a question? You remember in Acts 19, many of you remember, there were some well-intended Christians who tried to cast out demons, and they couldn't cast it out, and the demon asked, he said, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? Is our church so focused on reaching people for Jesus with the power of the gospel, even in the face of hardship, that Satan could look at us and say, I know who Tower of about Baptist Church is. Or I know who individual believers are that are sharing their gospel of Jesus Christ. May that be our goal for the coming year. But what about verse 8? It seems as though everybody dies and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, and your Bible may say this word, and I think it's the correct translation. Look at verse 8. It says, symbolically, where their Lord is crucified, which is called Sodom and Egypt, or your Bible may say Sodom and Gomorrah. This suggests a time that the church is going to face an un, uh, unprecedented assault on the verge of collapse, that somehow, through the next time frame, the church is going to die, and it looks like it's about to die, and that's what we see. But is this great city, what is this great city referring to? Is this referring to Jerusalem? I mean, it seems to suggest that, but it says where their Lord was crucified. Well, in verse eight, it doesn't necessarily refer to a literal Jerusalem. It implies that Jesus was rejected and crucified by the whole world himself, because Jesus did not die in Sodom and Gomorrah; he died in Jerusalem. And so, it can't just be Jerusalem here. I believe this is speaking about the symbolic downfall of a brief period where Satan seems to reign, seems to take on ownership of this world, but he doesn't quite win the war, because when Satan Presses hard. God always has a remnant of people. Do you remember in Elijah's time when Elijah was going through and he had a messenger come to him and he said, I'm the only one left. And the messenger, by God's grace, told him, oh no, but there are 7,000 of me who've yet to bow the knee to Baal. Sometimes you may feel like you're the only Christian that's around in this world in your family and your times, but oh, Christian, never forget God has people all around the world. Amen. Just like you can find a Waffle House on every street, in every corner in the deep south. You can find a true Christian in every corner, every place, everywhere, if you look and pray and see. I think these verses are not speaking about, as you go down to verse 9 and verse 8, there is three and a half days where the peoples and tribes and nations gazed on their dead bodies and refused to let them be placed in a tomb. I don't think this is referring to a physical burial. I think it's a contempt for the whole world against the church for all time, but especially in an increased period of, of terribleness. So where does this leave us? Let's get down to verses 11 and 12. We'll land the ship. If you're confused, it's a tough chapter. It's okay, but we'll get to the end and we'll apply this, and I think it'll make more sense. Look at verse 11. What happens to these witnesses, which I'm telling you are the church of all time? Well, they have a happy dead, resurrected... People Day, and they celebrate. You see there at the end of verse 10, they make merry and exchange presents. You know, what happens when Christians get downfall in this world? Do you know what the world does? When prayer was ripped out of schools, when the scriptures were ripped out of schools, when churches and families went from being centered on Christ, all the world celebrated because they wanted them not to win this war. Do you know what most people would desire in this nation if they had the right and the reign is that Christians would be put in the funny farm every time and every chance that they get. Or that they would be obliterated as they want to be in Nigeria. Muslim factions have one goal to destroy every Christian in that country, no matter what the cost. They'll steal the girls, they'll steal the women for illicit things, and they'll kill all the men because they know if they cannot reproduce in a Christian family, then there will be less chance. But Tertullian said it best the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the saints. When you kill Christians, it just grows them bigger, wider, faster, stronger, and deeper across this world. And so look at verse 11. He says, they made merry, but after three and a half days, again, I don't believe that's a literal three and a half days, it's some span of time, a breath of life from God entered them. What did Jesus tell Peter? Even though the gates of hell should come, they will not prevail against the church of God. When there is a church committed to the word of God, the evangelizing of God's word, the living out of God's word, all those things, God will be glorified. Andy, if you want to put up those next little things there, this part has some symbolism, some realism. There's debate about all these things. But you see that that, 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 that a great fear fell on them. God entered them, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. The world thought the Christians were dead, but all of a sudden the power of the gospel is coming. People are coming to Christ. They're being forgiven of their sins. They're being resurrected spiritually from the dead. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And that power went off and went there. I mean, isn't that what happened after Jesus died? The Jews thought that the power of Jesus and his followers would go away, but no, they kept growing. Thousands were baptized at Pentecost, and more thousands, and more thousands, and more thousands. Guys, don't ever think that just because you don't see progress of the gospel, the gospel is not going forth. God is bigger than what our eyes can see. When Samuel came to look at all the sons of Jesse, he looked at them with their eyes, and finally he said, Is that it, God? I mean, surely there's got to be someone out of the family here that's going to be strong enough to be king of Israel. And God said, but I have one, and his name's David. God doesn't look at the outward like man does. God looks at the inward and the heart. And I want you to know, though you don't see the gospel progressing through this neighborhood, your family, your workplace, if you're faithful to it, God is doing it. And so he says, a great fear fell upon them. What was this great fear? A great fear that God brought back to life what seemed to be a dead church. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. What is that? To be honest, there's a lot of debate on that. No one's really sure. Some say it's another rapture. Some say it's another uh, symbolic take of, of what the church has done. I think the point of it is, is that as the church has been persecuted and there's been a kind of a mini revival, global revival again, many of them are dying. And just like Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, we see Jesus high and lifted up, and he's calling all those people home because they're being killed for their faith. It's tough being a Christian, isn't it? So what happens? Well, look at verse 13. Four things happen here. I'm skipping around some for sake of time, but here it is. At that hour, there are four things. Can you note them with me? A great earthquake. What is that great earthquake? Well, was it literal or symbolic? Is it literal or symbolic? I want to argue what verse 13 is, just to be clear, and everyone seems to agree on this. This seems to be the very last time. Verse 13, we're, we're kind of jumping ahead in time. We're looking at all time and all the Christians everywhere. Verse 13 seems to be very specific because it occurred at that hour. Do you see that phrase there in your Bible in verse 13, that hour? What that seems to mean is that this is the time appointed by God for all things to come to an end. Four things happen. First off, There was an earthquake. There was an earthquake. This great earthquake is similar to uh, Revelation 6, the sixth seal, and, and Revelation 16, 18, the seventh bowl. Is it literal? I don't know. There's great debate on that, but a great earthquake happens. And after that earthquake, the second thing that happens, what happened to the people again? Seven, or excuse me, a tenth of the city fell. What city? We don't know. I don't think this is literally Jerusalem. It seems to be at the very end. It could be all the world. Again, there's debate on that. A city fell, and then 7,000 people were killed. 7,000 people were killed. If two witnesses were linked to the ministry of Elijah, the 7,000 would be one of those. Remember, there are 7,000 that didn't bow the knee. Maybe this is 7,000 who die, just the equivalent of those who did not bow the knee. We don't know. If it's a global judgment, it's one of those things, but we really have no idea. But the one I really want to focus on, look at the fourth thing of verse 13 a great fear came upon them. And what did those people do? They gave glory to God. Who are the only people who can give glory to God? Think about that for a second. No one, Corinthians says, can call Jesus Lord unless the Spirit puts it within them. Who are these people? Can I suggest to you that there's a fear falling on them? And what is happening here, and we see this in Revelation 15, we see this in Revelation 14, that when the fear of God comes, there are some who become Christians. There are some who at the very last, like that thief on the cross, turn to Christ and say, I believe, I believe. Man, it took all the world literally falling out on them and everything going wrong against them, but they came to believe. Who are these people? They are God's children, amen. They give glory to God. Do you know that Satan tells us the demons even believe in God and they shudder, but they don't give glory to God unless it is forced. These people seem to be genuinely giving glory to God. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Revelation 15, 4. And I want to suggest to you, and I'll close with these last two slides, I want to suggest to you that this is probably a mini revival at the very end of the world. We always think that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and they will. Every Revelation scholar believes that. But I want to suggest to you as we close out, this is a mini global revival. I mean, think about this for a second. There is a suggestion that the majority of people, not a few, are going under a positive transformation. In the Old Testament, it's kind of flipped on its head. In the Old Testament, God's judgments were affected many people and only left a few. Now God's judgments are saving a few and only leaving some who are not going to be judged. See, Darren, what does that mean? What I mean is, is that after all the terribleness that comes, that God seems to be bringing forth a people that did not want him, but are going to come to know him. And that ought to give you great joy. Because there will be many people who say, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. But when their life and the bottom falls out, they come to know Jesus Christ. As we often say, you have to hit rock bottom before you can see your way up. And there is some biblical truth in that too. There seems to be that God's kingdom at the end, there's going to be a great revival. That doesn't mean all the world's going to come to know Jesus. We're not universalists by any means, but the imagery paints a picture here of a massive global revival that many are going to glorify God. So what does this mean for you? Two things. If you are a church member here today, you need to know that the church itself is invincible and it's vulnerable. You need to accept, Christian, that the church is vulnerable. You need to accept that being a Christian means that you are going to be persecuted for your faith. That people will misrepresent you. They will misconstrue you. They may get rid of you. Being a Christian means that the church and all of its members, true members, true believers, universal church, will be persecuted. This is not your best life now. This is not all puddings and cakes. I mean, I feel the same as you do. I felt like I've eaten like five pounds of sugar in the last month alone at Christmas time. And it's all great and Christmas lights and all that stuff. Look, the Christian life is not easy. It's hard. We have to live by God's grace. But please, please, as we go through these times, do not believe anything less than that. If you are to know Christ, you are to know hardship. And suffering and trial. But what you are making here is of greater weight of what God will give you in heaven someday as a reward to be faithful for what He's called you to do here. Whatever you give up for Christ here, He will give you millions of times more. And aren't you grateful for that? Satan may win the battle, but God has won the war. But I want you to also believe in the church's invincibility. He will not win. He cannot win because Jesus has won. He rose from the dead. Do you, you ever wonder why there are two witnesses here? Why that's symbolic? Do you remember how many angels there were at the resurrection? Because every testimony had to be credible by how many witnesses? Two or three. The two witnesses here are not literal themselves. They're a witness of all time, of all people saying, Satan, you may think you've beat me, you may think you've beat the gospel, you may think you beat everyone who knows Jesus Christ, but up from the grave he arose, with a mighty triumph for his foes. And I don't know the rest, Tina, so you will have to help me later. And Brian's saying, everyone's saying, and you know it, he arose. That breath of life that he infused in them was not just a breath to get the gospel out. It was a breath of, of, of encouragement and fulfillment that he will hold them till the end. If you could lose your salvation, MacArthur has famously said, you would. But grateful you didn't save yourself and he saved you, he keeps you, he's holding you. Would you go to the book of Jude as we close? And I want to end with this. Go, Revelation 1.1, that little book of Jude, then one book over, we pass over it off and I want to close with this. I know it's been a long sermon. Thank you for your grace. But I want to end with this because it fits so well. Why is Jude right next to Revelation? I believe it's because these last two verses, and you've heard them, but I want you to connect it to God's invincibility of the church. Now to him, who's that him? Verse 24. Now to him to Christ, who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless or faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this this chapter, we can debate the fine details. Is it symbolic? Is it literal? Probably a little bit of both, yes. Yes. Well, the greatest thing we take from this is that through all this, your word, your message will go forth, even through the face of severe persecution. Father, here in America, that may look very, and it does look vastly different than our brothers and sisters in Iran and North Korea, Sudan, Nigeria, China, Southeast Asia, India, etc. We may not see the physicalness, perhaps, Lord, or the, uh, uh, the publicness of the persecution, But Lord, that word certainly rings true for all of us here who've been rejected by those in our family for standing up for biblical truth, for sharing Christ, for living out the precepts and commands, Lord, that you've given us to live. So Father, whether we are here or there or anywhere, we thank you that this chapter seems to point to the greatest truth that every Christian everywhere has the same lot. But every Christian everywhere, Lord, praise your name, has you at the head, and your son as the chief cornerstone and a spirit to guide and direct. So Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world facing unique persecution to their context. And we pray, Lord, though it may look different, it may not be as broad or as impactful to the culture or the world, but it's very real to us here. Whatever that looks like to live for you, would you give us the same grace to live? Father, thank you that scripture is clear that you will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. We love you, Lord. Give us grace for any in the sound of our voice as we sing that don't know you, that you draw them to Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Amen.